Empower Radio presents Out of the Fog. Join intuitive guide and spiritual teacher Karen Hager for lively, positive conversation with lightworkers, healers, and dynamic wisdom keepers. Get ready for inspiration and connection. This is Out of the Fog on Empower Radio. Here's your host, Karen Hager. Hello and welcome to Out of the Fog. I'm Karen Hager. Each week at this time, we gather for spiritual conversation and enlightening guests, and I'm glad you're here. Time and distance are no barrier to energy, and that means that no matter when you're listening, no matter how you found us, you are here for a reason. And I hope that something in the next hour lights you up and helps you move forward. Now, I found myself in Moab, Utah, a few weeks ago. I was on that long vacation, that trip that I always take with my family, where we drive across the United States to California and drive back again to our home in Michigan. The beauty of that place, of Moab, just took me by surprise. This is a place of deep earth power, of ancient civilizations, of stunning natural beauty. And it's also a reminder of the precariousness of our hold on this planet. It's a place created through the forces of wind, of water, of erosion, of the passage of time. And for a lot of people, it's a playground. My kids and my partner rode bikes and climbed and rappelled while I watched in terror as they did that. It's also a place, though, where if you allow yourself to be quiet, it is very easy to tap into the spiritual rhythms the energetic nature of the land. When we're in a stunning place like Moab, it's easy to feel connected to the earth. But for most of us, most of the time, we're focused on other things. We get distracted. It's noisy. We stop listening. My guest on today's show is Mary Reynolds Thompson. In her new book, Reclaiming the Wild Soul, she explores the connection between the great landscapes of the earth and aspects of our deeper, wilder, inner selves. She believes that these soulscapes, as she calls them, can reveal the magnificence of our own nature, providing us a path of personal transformation that is aligned with the healing of the wild earth. Are you ready to meet her? Mary Reynolds Thompson is an author, facilitator of poetry and journal therapy, and a certified life coach who helps people discover and live their wild soul story so they can bridge the false divide between outer and inner nature, earth and self, and become fully creative, connected, and alive. Mary's core faculty for the Therapeutic Writing Institute, the leading training institute for practitioners in the field of therapeutic writing. Her own retreats, classes, and workshops are delivered both in the States and internationally. You can find out lots more about Mary and her work at maryreynoldsthompson.com. Mary, welcome to Out of the Fog. Oh, thank you so much, Karen. It's wonderful to be here with you. Thank you very much. What, what is our wild soul? Great question. Um, our wild soul, as I see it, is really that part of us that feels so deeply our connection with the earth. And it's also the part of us that I think has been wounded. It's almost gone like um, a wounded animal and sort of gone into the brush to lick its wounds because 
we've separated from nature. Our modern culture really has elevated the human um, to such an extent that we no longer feel a part of this beautiful planet from which we emerged. And I think our wild souls really suffer that and suffer from it. Wild, to me, has a kind of a a messy or savage or unruly or out of control or dangerous connotation to it. And yet from reading your book, it, it, that's not at all what you mean. That's not what that wildness is. No. And I really think that wildness has gotten a bad rap. Mm. And it's so interesting what you say, because really, if you look up wild in the dictionary, all the things talk about are there, uncivilized, savage, you know, unmanageable, all of these things. And yet the truth is, what is wild is really authentic, natural, and behaves in a very sustainable way. In other words, if you look at a wild process, it tends to be a process that is essentially life-giving and essentially promotes more diversity, more sustainability. So <laughs> we might say that, um, you know, being wild, that we humans need to be more wild. And that doesn't mean we become more savage. It really means that we actually begin to align ourselves with the earth processes. For so many of us who are living lives that are disconnected, when we have those brief moments, like I did in Moab, those brief moments of connection. And, and you said, I found a, a place, Mary, along, along a road that wasn't very well traveled. And I was with my partner and we found a place where you could see if you looked up in just the right spot, there were ancient uh, petroglyphs that had been placed there by people a thousand years ago, more than a thousand years ago. What someone we asked about it later said that they were up high on the cliff now, but at that time we, the, there would have, that would have been at ground level. And seeing that, there was a handprint drawn. And seeing that handprint, Mary, connected something so deep in me. And yet, I looked at it. I had the experience. I got back in the car and, and turned on the air conditioning and drove back and then, you know, got back to my real life. Our, our, moments, of connection, our, our moments of connection are few and far between, I think. Yeah, I think that that's really true. And I think you put your finger on something that's really important. Um, is that we tend to put those moments away like so many family snapshots in a drawer and never sort of bring them out again. So what I'm trying to do partially in my work is really to have people begin to talk about these moments. Um, it's as though we, so many of us have them, and yet by not sharing them, um, they lose their power. And yet when we really do share them, when we you know, give each other a glimpse of, of what we feel, the awe that you describe in seeing that handprint that was so old on a, on a wall that is even more ancient, um, that draws us back into not only all of human history, but in a way into all of Earth history. And we begin to feel that sense of wonder, absolute wonder, at being so connected through our own embodied experience to this whole journey, this you know, 4.5 billion 
year Earth journey that we've been on. And um, these moments are just extraordinary. And you're right, we shut them down. But, you know, if we begin to talk about them, then they become alive in us again. And, you know, and I was listening to your beautiful description of Moab, and, you know, even that was, I could feel something awakening in me through your words and your description. And we can do that to each other, remind each other of what's really important. There's a power in in story, in storytelling, in sharing our experiences in community because we're tapping into something that's bigger than just us, aren't we? Yeah, I think we are. And we begin to find the common threads. There's something very profound when you tell a story um, like the one you just told about seeing that beautiful hand on, on the rock face. And somebody says, you know, I hear you. I understand what you're saying. I've had a similar experience. And to me, in a way, that's an essence of a spiritual experience. It's somehow that sense of aloneness and isolation that is a very modern um, sort of thing to suffer from gets broken down and we feel, you know, part of something much bigger. And there's a separation, too, I think. We can get so um, isolated, heads down, whether that's heads down, you know, I've got my face buried in my phone, or I've got my headphones on and I'm walking through the world, but I'm not paying attention to anything on it. We can get so mm, narrowly focused that we miss everything that's going on around us, because, of course, we don't have to be in Moab looking at the handprint on the cliff to have that kind of experience, we can look down and watch a bird fly by and have that experience if we're paying attention. Yeah, it could be these very small moments. You know, as you say, um, you know, what you're talking about, I'm reminded that the other day I was just walking close to my home and I was watching this adorable little girl. She maybe was, I don't know, maybe two and a half, at most three years old. And she was playing in the dirt and she was looking at the ants and she was chewing on the grass and she was just this gorgeous little animal body exploring the world and you could just see her she was transfixed and her mother was sitting beside her with her tiny little iPhone looking down click 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 Mm. texting away right and I wondered in that moment how long it would be before that little girl looked up and thought, what's my mother so interested in? And how soon it would be before her attention moved from the natural world to only wanting to explore what could be found in that little iPhone. And it really was a very poignant moment for me. Um, and, And then I began to notice, I was recently in Colorado, I live in Marin County, California, but I was recently on a trip doing workshops and and things around my book in Colorado, and I began to look around, and, you know, I was in Boulder, which is a very outdoor place. I mean, the people in Boulder really love their outdoor experiences, and yet, time and time again, I was watching parents with young kids not paying attention to the kids playing, but transfixed by their iPhones. I'm guilty of that. Um, Ah. Oh, my goodness, I know I'm guilty of that. Mm. Well, 
Well, I think we all are. And I think that's where, um, you know, it's not about making people wrong. It's acknowledging how scintillating and addictive technology is. And to realize that because that is the case, we really need to make a conscious effort to return our attention to what is real, mm. what is not virtual, but what is real. And the earth is real. And it's so important that we don't lose sight of that because we cannot breathe virtual air. <laughs> no, we cannot eat virtual food. Um, we will never be brought to a state of ecstatic joy through a virtual experience. We may be stimulated, excited, agitated, but we will not be brought through just a pure technological experience to a state of mm. real embodied ecstasy. So it's, you know, what's important to us? We're in a, in a place where we have to make some serious choices, I believe. Part of that reclaiming, taking our power back, from technology, taking our power back from distraction, taking our power back from the things that are not wild, as you describe wild. As we take our power back, what is what changes? What are the benefits of doing that? Well, I'd, I'd like to share an experience, if I may. Sure. Um, you know, I think that we're made whole. <laughs> So that is a big, big statement. I do realize that. Oh, but that. I, yeah. <laughs> but forgive me for that. But as I said, I think because of our separation from nature, that wild soul has sort of left us, and it's left an emptiness inside of us. And what happened for me is, as a young child, I was very connected to nature, and like so many people, I sort of was directed away from it. It's like in our culture... You know, when we get to a certain age, it's like, oh, playing in the natural world is child's play. You know, you need to get serious about your life. And what happened for me is I acted out what I call the shadow wild, which is that if we don't really find our way into a really healthy relationship with the natural world, which gives us a healthy relationship with our own psyches, our spirituality, our souls, our bodies, then we're liable to go search elsewhere for that feeling of completeness. And for me, it was through alcohol. And by the time I was 27 years old in 1983, I was a complete, full-blown alcoholic. But I had come to the end of my road in that way. Um, I just couldn't go on, partly because of heart issues and, you know, just um, terrible psychological pain that I was in. So I quit drinking. But I didn't know how I was going to stay stopped. And I was mm. absolutely absolutely terrified of living without alcohol. I, you know, I just didn't know how I was going to do it. And I was on a sort of, on the bluffs above the Pacific Ocean in Marin County. And it was an incredibly stormy day. It was in, a day in December. And the waves were crashing and hurling and spewing foam against the rocks. And I looked out at this scene of sort of chaos and churning and turmoil. And I thought, that's how I feel inside. And yet, at the same time, I looked at that ocean and I saw how incredibly strong it was. And this thought crossed my mind, maybe I was incredibly strong too. And in that moment, I tasted 
spilled in my mouth, and I didn't know if it was the ocean or mine. Mm. I only knew that I felt completely at one with that great body of water. Now, I have not drunk since that time. That's over 30 years ago now. I have lived joyously, wholly, creatively, and I would say wildly, (laughs) Um, because I believe in that moment, it was my first conscious moment of realizing that because I do not live on the earth, but I am made of the earth, in this case, I was made of the oceans, and I was aware of that, that it filled me up, that some part of me that had been missing was returned to me. And of course, slowly over the years, um, with many amazing experiences in nature that I've been blessed with, more and more of that has been restored to me. So to me, the reclaiming is so important because it's part of our wholeness. It's not to say that we have to be wholly wild or that we have to be stomping around you know, in the mountains and oceans every minute of our lives. But we have to own that to be wholly human is also to be wild. Mm. In the book, in Reclaiming the Wild Soul, you draw this very interesting path where you draw our attention to five soulscapes, archetypes of landscapes on the planet that also have resonance with um, attributes or challenges for us as people, individual, inside ourselves, challenges. Was that structure partly inspired by that experience you had on the clifftop that day? Yes, it was partly inspired. And the landscapes that I take people into are the deserts and the forests and the oceans and rivers and the mountains and the grasslands. And when I was writing about the oceans and rivers, I realized that that moment had really been a turning point for me in my life. I don't think I was as conscious about it, but but actually it was in me, you know, doing its work even while I was unconscious about it. But the other piece for me that really brought me to working with the archetypes was when I studied as a facilitator of poetry therapy. And immediately I became fascinated by the nature poets, people like Wendell Berry and Mary Oliver and William Stafford and Joy Harjo and on and on. And what I noticed was that their eye was always on outer nature, but they always returned us to inner nature. And I began to see this sort of call and response between the wild outside and the wild inside that began to fascinate me. And out of that, you know, once you're working with metaphor as a a poetry therapist, you know, it's not um, a a far leap to begin to work with archetypes, which are really sort of metaphors on steroids. You know, they they have um, so much power. Um, So that was the other way that I sort of worked my way into these archetypes. I was surprised as I read the book. The The first of these that, that you look at in the book is desert. And when I look at desert, I think of harshness and uh, lack, right? 
thirst and deprivation and bones under the hot sun. And, and the way that you've laid this out, the way you bring us through the desert is to see not only the, the harshness, but the beauty, the flashes of color, the way that our thirst can be um, met, right, can be quenched. Beautiful, positive ways of moving through, at least to me, the desert is the harshest of the, it's probably different for everyone who reads it. To me, the desert feels like the harshest of these five. What, how did you draw the positive and the negative out of these archetypes as you were pulling this together? Well, I didn't, you know, it wasn't really conscious. I think that's what's so amazing about archetypes. I, I began to work um, with the archetype skipping workshops, and I began to see that each archetype had its sort of shadow and its light. And so, as you say in the desert, you know, um, death is really visible in the desert, and it's understandable. It is a harsh, dry landscape, and we humans life cannot live without water. We know that. So to live in a landscape, whether it's psychologically or literally, that is very short of water is a precarious place to be. But on the other hand, what a lesson it is for us to think about how little we need to flourish. And that's really one of the gifts of the desert is that you know one tiny bit of rain and the desert blooms ecstatically. Um, you know, one sip of water, we come to light. So, you know, the desert is a great place to question, you know, what is it that I truly need? And in a culture of excess, the desert really is a teacher of how to get by when we're not overly distracted, we're not overly consuming, we're not overly busy. Um, you have to let go of stuff in the desert. Mm. Um, the desert does not welcome um, travelers who are overburdened. It's too much. So there is this tearing away, which is challenging, especially to our modern consciousness, but also um, profoundly beautiful. You know, who are we when everything else is taken away? You know, in the desert, these are the kind of questions that we're brought to. Mm. In my spiritual tradition, which is Christianity, there's this mystical, uh, ancient tradition of the desert fathers, people who left their lives and went into the deserts to lose everything that they had so that they might gain everything spiritually. And so to me, the desert is also a place of vision. It's the place where you can see the stars the most clearly. Yes, and, and, you know, those were also things that I shared in the desert landscape. There's a, and I, I know of the desert fathers, and I, I think that that's so true, that people retreated to these harsh landscapes to be internal, to really begin to go inwards and to cultivate spirit. And um, I tell a story um, that I love um, that is a story of Lauren Vanderpost, the South African writer and the Bushman of Kalahari. And of course, they are um, the desert people who really live with so little, have so little. But he tells a story of how he was around a campfire at night and they asked him, this white South African, they asked him, um, 
could he hear the stars singing? And he said no. I mean, nobody had ever asked him that. He didn't know the stars sang. And they looked at him as if he was a broken man. And he realizes that because of the nature of our Western mind, first of all, of separation from nature, but also our constant distractions, our big cities with our blazing lights so we can let alone see the the stars, let alone hear them, that there is something that we have lost. That because our life is so noise-filled, so disruptive, there is something that we have lost. And what would it be like if we could create places of silence so deep and pure that once again we could hear the stars singing? And of course, what we know now through science is that the heavens have their own music. The stars actually do sing. I mean, it's just mind-blowing, really, when you think about it. Oh, and that star song... That's in me, that's in you, that's in every person listening. We all resonate with that, even if we're not aware of it. Oh, beautiful. You're listening to Out of the Fog with Karen Hager. My guest is Mary Reynolds Thompson. Her new book is Reclaiming the Wild Soul, How Earth's Landscapes Restore Us to Wholeness. We'll be right back with more conversation after this. the forest. It's a place not so far away. A place where you don't have to mow the lawn or babysit. I saw lizards and squirrels and bugs, ladybugs, caterpillars. It's really cool, actually. A place where you don't have to make time for free time. Lots and lots of kinds of species here. Out here, you may even meet the mysterious creature known as the other you, the enchanted you. It's magic what flowers do. The adventurous you. My favorite tree. Yes. Is that one. The free-to-be-me you. <laughs> Ask your parents to take you to this not-so-far-away place. Come to the forest, where the other you lives. But first, stop by discovertheforest.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Hey, Larry, mind if I sit down? Nope. This coffee tastes like uh, coffee. So what's going on? Not much. What's new? Not much. Okay, but can you please put the newspaper down while you say not much? What newspaper? This newspaper. Oh, dude. What happened to your face? I see one, two, three, four, five, six. Dude, what is this? Eleven pieces of toilet paper stuck to your face? I'm shaving in the dark to save energy. I'm helping the environment. That's a dangerous way to help the environment. Well, sometimes you have to sacrifice yourself for the greater good. Dude, there's an easier and safer way to help the environment without sacrificing yourself. Go green, go public. Take public transportation. It's good for the environment and you won't have to live behind a newspaper. Wow. But for now, put the newspaper back up. A message from the public transportation systems across the country. To learn more, visit publictransportation.org. I'm home where I belong. 
It's always nice to come home. But these days, many Americans are at risk of foreclosure and losing their homes. Fortunately, help is available. Making Home Affordable is a free program from the U.S. government that has already helped over a million struggling homeowners. And we want to help you. I'm home. I'm home. And I love it. I'm home. Find out now what your options are. Go to makinghomeaffordable.gov or call 1-888-995-HOPE. The sooner you act, the better chance we can help you. I'm home. I'm home. Where I be Brought to you by the U.S. Treasury, HUD, and the Ad Council. And now back to Out of the Fog with Karen Hager on Empower Radio. EmpowerRadio.com. Welcome back to Out of the Fog. I'm Karen Hager, and I'm in conversation with Mary Reynolds Thompson. Her new book is Reclaiming the Wild Soul, How Earth's Landscapes Restore Us to Wholeness. You can find out a lot more about Mary and her work at MaryReynoldsThompson.com. And of course, I welcome your feedback, your comments on this show. Is there a place in nature, did you ever have an experience in one of Earth's most powerful landscapes or in the tiniest detail of your life that brought you into a deeper connection with the Earth and with that Earth nature in you, you're always welcome to reach out through my website, KarenHager.com. That's KarenHager.com. Mary, before the break, we were exploring the desert and and tapping into that balance between harshness and vision between the little drop of rain that makes everything bloom and how it feels to let go of everything. One of the other soulscapes that you talk about in the book is the forest. And the forest can, where the desert can seem quite wide open, the forest can feel claustrophobic almost. Yes, it's such a contrast, isn't it? And yeah, I, I think of the forest as being the darkest and the densest of the landscapes. Um. But one of the things that really came to me is, you know, this really playing with this whole concept of clear-cut. You know, we are clear-cutting our forests. As a metaphor, the modern world also clear-cuts. It wants to get from A to Z in the straightest line possible, right? Do you think of our freeway, you know, just straight through. We're on a sort of march of linear progress. But the forest has a different way um, of inviting us to navigate the world. And that's really on paths that are more labyrinthine, they swirl, they move, there's a more natural spiral motion to them. And to navigate these kinds of trails and paths, we really need our inner compass, our inner instinct, our intuition, our deep way of sensing our way into the world. So I think one of the things as we begin to think about the forest that exists both as a landscape without but also is mirrored within us is what is it to live into mystery, to not have everything be clear-cut, to invite the questions without always demanding the answers. And it's just a very different way to live than we do in our modern culture, which wants answers now, you know, click, click, click. And those answers, therefore, tend to be fairly superficial. 
when we are really needing to ask questions that we can live into and remain open to exploring, um, not just immediately wanting to know, well, you know, is that a yes or no? <laughs> That's I'm imagining as you're speaking just that that beautiful interplay of light and shadow that we see in the forest when the sun comes down through the trees and the leaves, and if there's a little breeze, there's that beautiful way that the light and the shadow move across whatever it is that you're looking at, the face of a loved one or the ground underneath your feet. That, as, as I imagine it, it's a wonderful, also an image for the way that our lives are. It's not just all light or all dark. It's not just all shadow or all bright sunshine. It's that interplay, and if we don't, stop and watch that, if we don't appreciate that, if we don't, as you say, live into those questions and wait, hold that space, we miss the whole thing. When we come in there with a bulldozer and knock it all down, we've lost the shadows and the light. Yeah, that's so beautifully put. And, you know, one of the things about clear-cut areas is that they become less fertile over time. So there is a sense that if we want things to grow, to grow within us or to grow on the earth, that some shadow is needed, some, you know, um, lack of exposure. And I think oftentimes we can talk about this too when something is being seeded in our souls. Um, you know, we're not already always ready to bring it forth into the harsh light of day. There's also this quality that I think the forest brings us to is that everything is born into darkness. I mean, 13.8 billion years ago, you know, the universe was born into darkness. And everything, the seed underground, is born first and, and is seeded first in darkness. You know, we within the womb in darkness. And yet, if we deny darkness, which is very much part of our culture, is we want everything in the light of consciousness, nothing in the darkness, then things cannot grow. Deep, gorgeous, deeply rooted, beautiful things will stop growing. We need darkness. Mm. And sometimes we need to take the twistier path. Sometimes we need to not uh, not take the freeway. Right. <laughs> it's mm. so true. And sometimes we have to leave the GPS um, behind in order to be lost. And this is something that I think we also have forgotten. You know, the forest invites being lost. And But it's being in lost. In getting lost, we are found. I mean, if we, we aren't lost occasionally in our lives, how will we take that strange turning that leads us to that exquisite waterfall that pours out of the earth in a way that we've never seen before? Mm. And if we don't get lost, how will we ever find that person who is so meant to be our friend and our business partner or our romantic partner? You know, so if we just stay on the clear-cut path, life is going to get very narrow. That fear, though, is is huge. When I think of it in that context, one of the things, my vocation is as an intuitive guide, and I talk to people a lot who are on the edge of great change, and yet 
they're afraid if I do this, it might go wrong. If I step out onto this different path, maybe there are shadows on the path. Maybe I don't, the GPS isn't working, right? Siri has deserted me suddenly. I don't know what's going to happen next. If I do this, if I take a step, I may get lost. How can we begin to move past those fears? That fear holds us right where we are. We're lost now in the fear. We just don't realize it. How can we move past that? Well, I think, like anything, it's taking little steps at a time. I mean, we don't necessarily want to head into the deepest, darkest part of the forest right away. You know, there may be a time where we need to be on the edges, stepping in and out. Um, You know, so I feel like we need to be gentle with ourselves and not have these expectations that we're going to move, you know, off the narrow path into the great wild exploration of life immediately in a heartbeat. Um, so just try, just try letting go of some things, of not needing to know all the answers all at once, at trying something different and just seeing what happens. And go gently with yourself. The thing is that we create in our modern world this false sense of security. So this is what sold the bill of goods. You get the right job. You get the right house. You get the right relationship. You birth the perfect children, and life will be just completely safe, right? And it doesn't happen that way. Because life is, regardless of how much we try and control it, a wild, unpredictable experience. And therefore, things will happen. Things will happen. You know, relationships will go. People will die. Um, Jobs and um, security will leave us at some point in our lives. And so I think part of it is recognizing that you might as well live because you can keep, you try and convince yourself that you're absolutely inured to anything happening to you. But it's simply not true. We're all vulnerable. And that's part of the wildness of life. And we're all finite in these human bodies, right? We have chronological time. It goes forward, um, moves forward sometimes relentlessly, it seems like. We do die, and it's part of that connection. At least I'm imagining myself standing on the path in Moab and looking up at that handprint. Um, We're drawn into the ways in which we continue even after we're done in these bodies. And so if we're focusing only on this life, what's in front of us now, our rigidity, our fear, our limits around this, we're kind of missing a chance to expand into something greater. Not that my timeless connection may seem as important as, I don't know, I've got to get a job right now and I got to right doesn't mean it's more important, but we can lose perspective so easily. Yeah, and I love what you say is it's not more important. It's not an either or, because that's also what we, we tend to be. You know, as you talked about the light and shadow, it's not an either or. So, yes, when we need to put food on the table for our families, it's important to get a job. And to say otherwise is um, insulting. But that doesn't mean that we shut out this other side, which may be also inviting a different way, um, something less obvious, more mysterious, more marvelous. So, 
you know, we humans have huge capacity to hold so much. I mean, it was very funny. You know, my brother died, um, gosh, a year and a half ago now, my only sibling. And it was a very devastating, sudden death. And it, it you know, I was immediately thrown into the grief of the desert, that dry, parched place. But simultaneously, I was also in the grassland because so many relationships that um, I had forgotten about or people that I had forgotten about came back into my life. And there was such lushness there and such beauty and such joy. And I remember thinking at one point, how can this be that I have never been more devastated and yet I'm also experiencing incredible love and joy in my life? And, I, and it's all there, you know. So I feel that we really underestimate our capacity to hold so much at one time. I love I love that we underestimate our capacity to hold so much at one time. I think that's I think that's absolutely true. You've said that ancient earth consciousness resides within us always and we can access it at any time or place. When I'm in that need to get a job, in that need to put food on the table, in that need to overcome fear or whatever it is, how can I access that ancient earth consciousness? Well, first of all, I think it's really important to say that the landscapes that we've mentioned, the deserts and the forests and the oceans and rivers and mountains and grasslands are our ancestors. They were here on Earth before we were and we emerged out of them. So just as we can feel our human ancestors at times, we must also be aware that these landscapes shaped us. They shaped our imagination, our creativity, our spirituality, and they reside within us. So, for example, if one is in a really stressful um, period, maybe a very survival period, once you become familiar, you really ask, where do I need to go? You know, right, you may feel propelled into that place of scarcity in the desert, right, the sort of shadow side of the desert. But you may say to yourself, as I did when, you know, my brother died, my goodness, I actually need more than ever to seed myself in the grasslands right now. So even while part of me is in the desert, I'm going to go off to the grasslands and think, what, what are they about? What do they have to offer me? a sense of belonging and community and, um, a, you know, a sense of more of abundance and resiliency. Um, so we learn to navigate these things imaginatively. And in a way, it sounds strange, and people can go at first like, well, you know, you're just kind of playing here. But the reality is we can embed ourselves in a landscape and bring the wisdom and power of that into us in an immensely, immensely um, kind of life-enhancing way. And as storytellers, you know, we humans are such storytellers that if we tell ourselves, 
I am in the grassland. Whatever is going on in my life, I am now in this grassland. I am feeling into my connections with the people around me. I am loving where I am rooted in this world. I am trying the best of my ability to feed my gifts into the world, even though life is very stressful and I'm scared and I'm my bank account. You know, by just being in that place, working with those metaphors, you begin to create a sense of safety within yourself. And from that place, whatever you do is going to come from a very, very different energy. The way that Reclaiming the Wild Soul, the book is set up, there are explorations after every section of the book, ways that the readers can begin to tap into some of the fruits of these soulscapes. How should, how do you envision or how do you want readers to interact with the book, to, to make those explorations, to, to use this in their lives? Well, that's really interesting because, you know, there are people who never do explorations or, or exercises in books, right? Um, you know, I never do those. And they'll just read through it. And, you know, that's just wonderful. And, you know, at the beginning of the book, I say you don't even have to read through in any order. You can just kind of, you know, jump in and out as you feel free. But the truth of it is that the metaphors that I play with that come and arise out of these archetypes were the ones that emerged most strongly in me and most strongly when I worked with others. But if you do engage in the exploration, then you have a chance really to find your own way into these landscapes because I believe they have particular wisdom for each person. So you're just essentially deepening your intimacy with these landscapes. Um, and yet you don't have to. You know, we're all busy people. Um, and I, I want all of my readers really have permission to, <laughs> you know, just travel this book as they, as they like. But I do hear from people, I have to say it makes me so happy, who, for example, have cut up the book. <laughs> oh. And they take just the sections They've stapled it together, and they take these little sections when they go out into the forests or the oceans and rivers or the, the deserts or whatever it be. So they're really, I mean, it's, these you know, pages are now well torn and used and thumbed through and written over, and the explorations have been done, and, and people are in conversation with me about what's happened for them, and it's, it's really very, very profound. Um, one man um, I'm thinking of, his name is Bo Hawk, and I, um, he was an Edward Abbey fan. And, you know, Edward Abbey, for those who know him, is um, really somebody who's known so well for his relationship with the desert. And he said all of his life he's been drawn to the desert. Um, but when he came to my book for the first time, he understood why. And he understood, and this was so moving to me, that something that had made him feel so different all of his life, his sort of outsiderness, was something that he realized now was a deep and special gift of the desert to him. And, you know, that was just amazing to hear. Mm. And to be able to, maybe that's part of the reclamation that we're talking about, to be able to take that 
thing that we thought made us other, uh, made us different, made us less than, and maybe begin to see that as a gift. I know that in my own journey has been true. Maybe that's part of reclaiming our soul. I think it is. What I, what I believe very strongly is that the modern world has really limited and we think that we have so much, so many more opportunities that, you know, and on one level we do and yet we don't because essentially there's a very narrow margin of what's acceptable in our modern world about how we act, how we behave, how we show up, the kinds of responsibilities we take on. But once you begin to enter these different landscapes, you realize that there are many more ways to be in this world, that the, these great landscapes mirror back to us, so that, yes, pieces that have felt strange or as, as if they had no place suddenly feel this sense of fitting in and belonging. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a huge part of it. I'm um, relating to what you said about people taking the pages out of the book and writing over them and um, loving them well. And I see that a passion of yours is therapeutic writing. Can you say a little bit about the practice of journaling and how that might help us not only mm, get into connection in this way, but also to remember it? That's my big problem. I see the amazing thing that I get back in the car. <laughs> yeah, and actually, I was going to take us back to that exactly that point that you described. Like you have this moment, and then boom, you know, um, life takes over, and you forget it. So, in journaling, I believe that that there's really always two processes that that occur. One is that you write about what you experienced, but the other is that you reflect back on what you wrote to glean the nuggets out of that. So really, it's about saying when you had this experience in the desert and you saw this and you can describe it, and oftentimes a very powerful way to describe it is to go back into the present tense, first person. So in, it may have happened weeks ago, it may have happened years ago, but you're going to put it in the present tense with I am. So immediately by doing that, you're, you're reviving that in the present in your body. And then after you've written your piece, you go back and you reflect, what, what do I notice here? What surprised me? And this is your wise observer self coming in to say, you know, the reason you remember that and why it's so important for you is, you know, it connects you with this. This is what gets sparked in you. So it's both the embodied immediacy that gets revisited, but also that wise reflection that reminds you of why this is an important signal that really is revealing to you more about yourself. When you are working with people who are experiencing transition, going through transformative change in their life, do you often suggest that they use writing as a practice to do exactly what you just suggested? Um, yes. But I'm also very aware of the power of writing. So, um, you know, sometimes when people are in transition and they have a lot of fear 
um, coming up with that you've talked about and, and so beautifully and compassionately, they it's not a great thing to write masses and masses and masses of stuff because that can actually begin to agitate you. Mm. You know, so when I'm working with people who may be in quite challenging situations, I try and keep the short the writing quite short and fairly focused. Um, because if you write reams, um, then when you're in a very agitated state, you have to be careful that in the writing of everything that's going on and all your fears and all your troubles and all of that, your angst, you're not actually beginning to, you know, activate it in your body. So writing is incredible and journaling is incredible, but as with anything that has power, you know, we you have to use it wisely. And it's not one one thing suits all, right? It's it's never that. Mm. Can you let the listeners know how to get in touch with you, what they can find on your website? Yes, I'd be really delighted to. If you do go to maryreynoldsthompson.com, you're going to find out sort of just about everything about me. <laughs> there are lots of, yeah, it's all there. It's all there. Um, but there's lots of beautiful poetry on there. There are videos that you can watch um, that sort of, um, really address what we've been talking about today. There are interviews with all kinds of people about what I call their wild soul stories, these deep moments of connection in the natural world and how it shaped and shifted them. So I talk to poets and I talk to teachers and scientists and environmentalists and people you know, from all around the world, actually, about those experiences, mystics, um, <laughs> you name it. And so I, I do believe it's a, it's a wonderful place for people who are just beginning to be interested in their own wild souls to come and find a, a place to come play and um, and a community. Mm. I know that you have said that this book took about a decade to put together. Is there another book brewing in there? Yes, and I'm actually really excited about it. Um, and it's partially come because I'm teaching a class now through an organization called Tree Sisters that both empowers women and also plants trees. And the title of the course is A Wild Soul Woman. Mm -hmm. So I've been taking them through the archetypes, um, but from a feminist perspective. And oh my... That is interesting. So therein lies my, my next book. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Mary, thank you so much for being on the program today. What great fun to move through some of those soulscapes with you. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. That's Mary Reynolds Thompson. Her new book is Reclaiming the Wild Soul, How Earth's Landscapes Restore Us to Wholeness. You can find out more about Mary and her work at MaryReynoldsThompson.com. And of course, I welcome your feedback and your stories of being touched by that ancient earth consciousness, that deep awareness. You can always reach me through my website, KarenHager.com. That's also a great place to find out about working with me privately, classes and events, and all that good stuff is there. Thank you for listening today. Together we are spreading a little more light in the world, and a little more light is always a good thing. Until next time, I'm wishing you peace.
peace.